0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Tim Flannery. He's head of the Climate Council, an author of many books, and an evolutionary historian. He joined me on the phone to talk about his new book, Europe, A Natural History, which is out through text publishing. And you're tuned in to 3 FM in Melbourne. This is Amy Mullins with you on Uncommon Sense. And as I said, I'm up until noon today on air with you and I'm having a great time. And now I'm having an even better time because I get to speak to the wonderful Tim Flannery who has written a book called Europe, A Natural History. He's written many books, um, some of which I'm sure you would be familiar with. And uh, they include Here on Earth, The Weathermakers and Atmosphere of Hope, he was the Australian of the Year in 2007 and is currently heading the Climate Council. Uh, he's a professor and an academic. He writes for public consumption for you and I and this book is certainly very accessible and I'm really excited to uh, welcome Tim Flannery now. Hi there, Tim.
1: Hi, Amy. It's great to be with
0: you. Thank you so much for your time and um, really congratulations on a fascinating book that's exploring something so different. Um, It certainly, it really opens up your imagination to think about the different creatures and animals and plants and uh, even continents and worlds that lived before us and uh, how really the Europe we see today is very different from that Europe um, that you you discover and talk about at the beginning of that book.
1: Well, that's true, Amy. I I guess you can think about contemporary Europe as a continuation of that long story, you know, the 100 million long year long story of how Europe has changed. And, you know, over that period, Europe's gone from a tropical archipelago in a, in a warm ocean Full of dinosaurs, um, right through to the Ice Age, when there was woolly mammoths and all the rest of it, um, through to contemporary Europe, you know, so it, it's a long journey, and over that period, Europe's reinvented itself at least three times, you know, with massive extinctions and then immigrations and, and so forth, so it really is, a, it's a big picture story, I suppose.
0: Yes, and many people would know your work, particularly the climate change work, but um, I was interested to see that you have a real love and passion for paleontology, and fossils and that was really a childhood um, passion that has evolved so I just like to understand a bit about um, the reason why you got so I guess inspired by paleontology and and was that really part of the inspiration for this book?
1: Well, it certainly was part of the inspiration for the book. Um, I've always loved fossils. I still remember finding my first fossil at the age of eight. I wasn't sure what it was. I took it into the museum and um, someone in there identified it as a fossilised sea urchin. And I remember being fascinated and thinking, my oh God, this was once a living animal on the bottom of a now vanished sea, probably full of, you know animals that have gone extinct as well and it's that sense of imaginative wonder at lost worlds I think that that drives me um, to write books like Europe because even though these worlds are lost and they're distant we can still find relics of them today not just as fossils but even as living organisms in Europe because there are some creatures that have survived in Europe since the age of the dinosaurs Mm. they really are Europe's equivalent of the platypus.
0: And could you share with us a couple of those?
1: Sure. Look, one of my favourites is the midwife toad, which is a small amphibian. It's widespread in Europe. But what distinguishes it is that the male takes care of the eggs and the young. Um, So that's quite unusual for a a toad or a frog. Um, But that lineage, um, you know, those eyes that blink up at you from a a midwife toad, the ancestors of those eyes blinked up at dinosaurs in Europe. Mm. And they're a distinctively European
0: group. Yes, I, I was struck by that story too, particularly how they look after them, which is like wrapping the eggs around their legs and carrying them with them for such a long period of time um, while they breed uh, a number of other times.
1: That's right, and they can carry up to three lots of eggs with them at once and um, they, they'll search around for the perfect pond. To put the young into, and um, that you know, the water quality has to be right. There's got to be no predators. It's sheltered and not liable to dry out. So, so it's quite a responsibility if you're a male midwife toad.
0: Yeah, it's really impressive. Uh, it's probably a good role model yeah. for fatherhood.
1: <laughs> well, exactly, and it's interesting. It evolved in Europe. I must yeah. say, I find it quite fascinating that that. Uh, you know, but doubtless that that characteristics helped the species survive every revolution and crisis for the last you know 100 million years.
0: Yes, and what's also Interesting is the fact that they secrete natural antibiotics from their skin to protect uh, these eggs from infection. It's just fascinating how nature provides for these situations.
1: It is. What well, looks like a little fragile creature actually has this whole armament of behaviors and physiologies and chemistries to help it get into the next generation.
0: Mm. And in terms of the span of time that this book covers, could you give us an idea of the scale of the span of time we're talking about? Because it's often quite hard for people to relate to things when we're in the millions and millions and hundreds of millions of years.
1: That's right. Look, I wanted. I asked the question, where did Europe begin? And if you ask that question, you... So I trawled back through the scientific literature trying to find the moment when the first distinctively European organisms evolved. And it turns out that that was about 100 million years ago. And those organisms evolved on a tropical archipelago that was much more like the Solomon Islands today than, than contemporary Europe. It was a series of, um, of tropical isles full of dinosaurs, the ancestors of the midwife toad, which were some of the very first European creatures to evolve, um, ancient birds, ancient mammals. The seas were full of um, marine reptiles. Uh, it was a very, very different place. It was the place, actually, that gave rise to the cliffs of Dover. You know, those lovely white cliffs, mm. they're all... They're all formed from the remains of organisms that that thrived in the tropical sea that surrounded that ancient archipelago and were chewed up by predators and then pooed out and the fragments formed the, the chalk.
0: It is really fascinating to think that um, not all of Europe was formed in one go. I mean, a lot of people might assume that, for example, the Alps were there from the beginning of time, or at least the the part of the way that they appeared today were there. But, in fact, the Alps really came quite a lot later on, didn't they?
1: Yeah, they did. They, they had an early period of, um, of rejuvenation, you know, perhaps 90 million years ago when they were tips of tropical islands, but then things became quiet and it was only really about 30 million years ago that they started to really start building again. And the reason, of course, the Alps are there is that Africa has been pushing into Europe with unimaginable geological force and bits of Africa have actually slid off and become incorporated into Europe. Mm. So if you look at at some of the highest peaks uh, in in the Alps, um, like the Matterhorn, you know, the very tip of that is actually a part of Africa. That split over the top of Europe and ended up as part of the highest point on the Alps.
0: It's amazing, and part of the um, the real interest of this book is the fact that you draw out where the connections were at various points of time between um, these big land masses. So you know, parts of Europe were connected to uh, Africa or Asia at various points in time, and that then facilitated, I guess, the the species crossing over to different um, areas and then thriving. Or not so, um, perhaps not surviving in those climates and, and different environments.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, the interesting thing about the ancient European archipelago is that it was the exchange or natural crossroads between three of the largest land masses on our planet you know, Asia, Africa, and North America. And, and it, it, Europe has been repopulated and formed by immigration from those land masses since its first moment. Um, you know, just to give you one example of, of, of that is, is our own human lineage. I mean, the apes arose in Africa about twenty-five million years ago, but by thirteen million years ago, certain apes had got into Europe and were flourishing. They then went extinct in Africa, so the only apes that our ancestors we had were in, in Europe, and one lineage in Greece about seven million years ago started to walk upright, mm. and the descendants of those upright walkers walked back into Africa to give rise to our lineage. So often the, the interactions are complex, but they're really fascinating to see how this perpetual migration has formed the Europe we know today.
0: Yes, and just how interconnected we are despite how we kind of cordon ourselves off nowadays with borders.
1: Well, the, the very essence of of. Europe is, is migration and mm-hmm. hybridisation. Our, um, our own European species results from you know African migrants who were just like African people living today, getting to the borders of Europe 38,000 years ago and then hybridising with the Neanderthals. So the reason we have, some of us have, blue eyes and blonde hair those neanderthal genes that um that were preserved with that hybridization event and um and so from the very beginning africans and europeans hybridizing have given rise to the europeans we know today and that process of migration is just ongoing that is the essence of europe it's the essence of europe's success and it's the essence of the story of the continent from its very
0: beginnings Mm, and it's a story that perhaps needs to be told a bit more in our current day um, and it certainly would help some of our social issues that we uh, confront but I'd like to talk about hybridization given you mentioned that you um, have in interviews mentioned how a lot of people would think perhaps hybridize hybridization isn't necessarily um, a good thing but in your case or when you draw out examples there are many great examples um, for animals and others where you, we have really benefited um, evolutionarily evolutionary by hybridisation.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, the new emerging view of hybridisation is that it's a mechanism that allows species to share genes that may be beneficial in new environments. So that example of us humans is a good one. You can imagine those African people migrating up into chilly, um, dark Europe uh, with, their, with their dark skins. They're unable to synthesise sufficient vitamin D. But if they hybridise with Neanderthals who are pale-skinned, blue-eyed and red-haired and get some of that genetic inheritance into their descendants, those descendants will do much better because they won't suffer from rickets or vitamin deficiency. So that's just one simple example. The elephants have done the same thing. The hyenas have done the same thing. Almost every lineage we've looked at in Europe has benefited from that hybridisation process.
0: Yes, um, and one of the uh, particularly surprising events that you describe in a really great um, imaginative and quite literary way is the um, this big catastrophe that happened whereby um, a bolide struck the earth and essentially created this massive um, disruption in so many different natural processes across the entire earth and... Um, I really wasn't aware of the extent of, of what happened and the the lasting effects it had. Could you share with us um, some of what had happened and when it was?
1: Sure. Look, that is going way back into the story to 66 million years ago when um, Europe was a tropical archipelago inhabited by dinosaurs as its largest creatures. Um, and a bolide or an asteroid from space, it's a very large one, probably 20 kilometres across, Crashed into North America, and that created um, a series of things from massive wildfires to changes in ocean chemistry to um, a nuclear winter that destroyed most of the large animals and plants on the planet. And Europe was was within a few thousand kilometers, perhaps four or five thousand kilometers of that asteroid strike. So, which in Earth terms is pretty close. Mm. So, um, it was absolutely devastated. Everything on the surface of Europe was destroyed. A few burrowing and tunnelling creatures survived. Some seeds survived. But, of course, all the insects that lived in the trees were killed. Um, So when the trees grew back, the forests of ancient Europe were extraordinarily dense and tall and dark and silent. Um, Because there was no insect predators, there was nothing to eat the leaves. Um, You can imagine it in that tropical environment. And, and the creatures took a surprisingly long time to give up their subterranean habits. <laughs> there was um, lots of small burrowing things, mammals, lizards, and uh, frogs, midwife toads, of course. You know, surviving for 10 million years after that. So, mm. you know, if you'd imagine visiting Europe at that time, it would have been a bit like the great forests of Borneo in historic times. You know, those dark forests with their luminescent fungi. But without any of the large animals or birds, just these silent realms.
0: Yeah, it, it's really eerie um, and you can imagine, I guess, what it would have been like to encounter such a world um, and particularly what is, was surprising when, when I read it was the fact that actually um, that event reduced the amount of sunlight reaching the earth by as much as 20% and uh, photosynthesis couldn't occur for quite a long time. So it's amazing that those kind of processes were stopped but then regained after many, many, many years.
1: That's right. And you know a lot of species survived either as seeds, long-lasting seeds in the soil or in the waterways, the fresh waters, because uh, fresh waters carry detritus and then you can have bacteria that don't depend on photosynthesis that can break down that detritus and form the basis of a food chain for things like salamanders and toads and crocodiles and so forth mm. so it was a very severe devastation and only the only the most protected areas really survived in the northern hemisphere at least
0: yes i'm speaking with tim flannery who is the author of europe and natural history which is out through text publishing uh tim i was surprised to hear about um europe's legacy in regards to coral reefs um certainly as an australian i would associate coral reefs with you know Pacific islands or um, tropical islands, and that that kind of environment. You've already mentioned there that the archipelago was quite uh, similar to tropical islands. What is that special legacy that uh, Europe has with coral reefs?
1: Well, look again. It was astonishing to me when I started researching the book that you know I went to the British Museum. There was a grey steel cabinet there. A curator opened it pulled out a box with this nondescript lump in it and said this is the earliest uh, coral of the kinds of corals that form the ramparts of the tropical reefs today Mm. and i was amazed it had been actually named by another australian researcher who's one of the world's great coral reef experts but that coral's 40 million years old you know and it was growing on the south coast of england at the time and my One that was only increased when I went to Italy, to a place called Monte Volta where there's a whole fish fauna preserved, just immaculately preserved. You can see the colours in some of the fish still. And some of them are enormous. They're two metres long. But they're all fish you'd see on tropical reefs today. Mm -hmm. And they are the earliest evidence we have of, uh, of, of that fish fauna or the assemblage that lived in the coral reefs. And that's probably 50 million years old.
0: Mm. It's, it's really fascinating. And uh, yeah, I did actually Google Southampton because I wanted to visualise what on earth this place looks like nowadays, but um, it certainly didn't look to me like a coral reef hotspot. So it's amazing, no. really.
1: Well you've got to project your mind back and think yeah. Southampton back then was facing the Atlantic with great breakers coming in from a much warmer sea than today onto an abrupt coast which is of course just what coral reefs love, you know, mm. that sort of environment and you can imagine the the those reef forming coals forming this rampart. Uh, to protect the
0: coast Yes And one of the um, really important periods of time That you talk about Is um, the Miocene I think it's pronounced hopefully And it's um, it really is it, Or it sounds like a very important period Whereby there was a lot of flourishing Happening and uh, development What makes the Miocene So distinctive and important?
1: Well look I think of it as being europe's period of being a garden of eden really it was um if you look at the fossils that were in europe from say 10 million years ago in the middle of the miocene they're pretty similar to the sort of things you'd find growing in kenya 10 million years ago you know and i called it a garden of eden for good reason because it was exceptionally diverse in terms of birds and animals with things like hummingbirds that you wouldn't expect in europe um and, and elephants and rhinos, a great abundance of rhinos. But among all of that, by 7 million years ago, were our first upright ancestors. So in a sense, the birthplace of our lineage, if you think of us as being the upright apes, was that Miocene Europe.
0: Mm. Yes, it is. And there's like a range of um, fascinating topics in the Miocene that you um, uncover and the different uh, trees and vegetables such as, um, is it the dragon tree, which is um, the sap is, looks like dragon's blood?
1: That's correct. And you can still see that tree growing today in the Canary Islands. And you know, mm-hmm. if you want to see a little living remnant of Miocene in Europe, you can't do much better than the Canary Islands. Many of the tree species that flourished in Europe at the time survive on the Canary Islands. Tragically, hardly any of the animals do because the Canary Islands were never connected with Europe. So the seeds that came in the Miocene came on the feet of birds or drifting across the sea. Well, not many animals made it. But one species did, which is a giant lizard, mm-hmm. a metre long that would have greeted the first human inhabitants, the Carthaginians, uh, when they arrived on uh, the the Canary Islands a couple of millennia ago.
0: Yes, and uh, you raise it towards the end of the book, um, the different species that have come and gone, um, and certainly the way you describe those that we now don't get to see because they they're not existent they're obviously some of them are existent in fossil form um but you know you talk a little bit about um extinct species and genetic restoration and how feasible that is i've certainly um you know spoken with uh, a person about that before and it seemed like it was a particularly difficult thing when you don't have um live or um you know, viable tissue to, to base things on and you've really only got incomplete DNA sequences. But, you know, are there, I guess, plans to bring back or at least, um, you know, look into the DNA and understand better the, the types of species that are extinct and perhaps capture our imagination?
1: Yes. Look, um, it's a question that has been really transformed by recent understandings of the extent of hybridization. And just to give you one example, um, Europe's forest elephant flourished throughout Europe for a million years before our um, species drove it extinct. You know, humans have, have been really tough on elephants over most of the world and tragically the last of Europe's forest elephants went extinct on some of the Mediterranean islands perhaps as little as five or 7,000 years ago. But people have recovered genes from those forest elephants and they've discovered the most astonishing thing that 40% of the genetic inheritance of those forest elephants from Europe are actually from African forest elephants, which is amazing. Mm. Another 40% comes from the ancestral African elephant that we're all familiar with and another 20% comes from Indian elephants and from woolly mammoths. So if you're thinking about reconstituting Europe's forest elephant, you couldn't do much better than go to the African forest elephants of today and start there, because almost half of the genetic inheritance of the species is present in those those animals.
0: That's fascinating. Mm. It sounds like it, yeah. things are developing quite quickly along that, um, that scientific path.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, when I speak to people about elephants... Back in Europe, people said there's no space. And I say, well, the truth of the matter is that Africa's forest elephants are going extinct very quickly. By the end of this century, there'll be 4 billion people in Africa. And um, Europe is, in the meantime, becoming depopulated. So, you know, there's 20 million hectares of abandoned land uh, going to be created in Europe over the next decade and there's already vast areas of abandoned land. Mm. So if we think big about this and think about where we may create a refuge for the endangered and of the world, uh, Europe's not a bad place to start.
0: That's a really great argument to make. Um, certainly it is really tragic to see so many different species going extinct uh, in Africa, and at least um, those that are endangered are really, truly in trouble. And, and as we've seen just recently, even insects, there are so many that are... Um, under threat. Uh, So yeah, there's just a lot of issues that are still present today that um, this book really draws out. Uh, And I think it's fascinating to see just how, um, you know, we've evolved and how things are similar and dissimilar. Um, So I think it's a really great contribution. Um, Tim, what were you hoping, I guess, to do when you were um, researching this book? Were you looking to, I guess, inspire people's imagination or get them passionate about conservation? Did you have any kind of aims in mind um, when putting together such a a thorough and um, fascinating book?
1: Well my first aim really was to understand myself what Europe was about Mm. so I always write out of great curiosity and i a bit selfish, I suppose, in that I write the book I want to read. <laughs> I want to understand this, this whole big story, you see. Um, and as the, as the story evolved and I began to comprehend it, I realised there was actually several stories in one. There's the story of the discovery of Europe, Europe's fossil record, which is amazing in itself. There's the multiple changes in Europe. And then there is the reference to the great challenges Europe faces today in terms of things like its insect extinctions and its rewilding programs and, and what Europe is. What Europeans are struggling to comprehend their place in the world and that idea that they are the children of immigrants and that migration and hybridization have been the great constants in Europe ever since the moment it first formed are really important, I think, in terms of us calibrating, or Europeans calibrating their place in the world and what their future might be.
0: Yes, that's a really great point. There's certainly a number of countries having a bit of an identity crisis and also um, a crisis when it comes to immigration. So, yeah, it's a fascinating um, real echo and a great story to be told um, and to retell and hopefully uh, that will happen in Europe. Are you going to be um, travelling there or have you been sharing that story with um, those in Europe?
1: Look, I've been going to Europe for 30 years researching this book and trying to collect the facts and figures I need and I will be going back in June to talk to Europeans about this. Um, And my message to them is the one great danger that has always presented itself to Europe is this concept of purity. Mm, Um, There is no such thing as purity. The very essence of Europe is, in fact, uh, exchange, hybridisation, massive environmental shifts this is what europe's about really so ideas of purity are in fact the great danger as we as we've seen from nazism and mm. uh, th- those are the those are the failed versions of europe
0: exactly tim uh, you've really just highlighted how important history is to us today and uh, i really appreciate what you've done in this book, and also for taking the time to explain it and hopefully inspire some of us to read more. So, thank you so much for that and congratulations.
1: Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure being with you.
0: I've been speaking to the wonderful Tim Flannery, who is a professor at the University, well he was a professor at the University of Adelaide and many others, he's visited Harvard University, uh, he's presented a range of shows and documentaries, he's written many books, he's a scientist and a historian and he was Australian of the Year in 2007, so a busy man and a very curious one and that is um, obviously what makes him work so well and, uh, and create such great books so, if you wanted to look into what we've been discussing, you can pick up a copy of Europe, A Natural History, which is by Tim Flannery, and it's out through Text Publishing. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3 FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.